calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. and welcome to Vulgar History. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where I just kind of like casually explain some stories to you that are like amazing, very gossipy, and they're also, I would say, scandalicious. At the end of the episode, I'm going to give the story, um, I'm going to rate it on a scandalicious scale. So their last episode, which was about Carolina Brunswick, she ended up scoring a 20 out of 40 on the scandalicious scale, which I think is a good place to start because it's like exactly halfway. So there's room for us to get like more intense, wild stories, but also some that are a bit less like, and it's not saying that one person we're looking at is better than another person or that one person matters more. It's just kind of like just to gauge the story where it where it falls on that scale. So like depending on what kind of mood you're in, you can like seek out a story that's like got more uh, just like excessive weirdness to it or ones that are like a bit more calm. And today's story, I'm excited to see where this is going to land on the scale because it <laughs> well, let's let's just get into it, I guess. Um, today we're looking at the story of a woman named Frances Howard. She was born in 1590. So this is basically the Stuart era. So this is like after there was the Tudors, then there was the Stuarts. So it's like shortly after Queen Elizabeth's whole thing is when this whole situation is going on. And the thing about Frances Howard is I am so obsessed with her. I love her whole story. I love her whole aesthetic. I love everything about her. And so I've read about her a bunch already. And today I was thinking like, oh, I'm just going to see like what other podcasts are talking about her. And maybe I was like not searching well, but I feel like I'm good at searching and I couldn't find any podcast talking about her, which is just like, I mean, I'm, I'm here offering the service of just like making this podcast about her because everybody should know her story. It is an amazing story. When I post this podcast episode, I'm going to put a picture of her, like a portrait, like painted while she's still alive. So you can all see what she looked like. And the thing is, I affectionately have come to think of her. And just a reminder that this podcast is called Vulgar History. So there might be some vulgar language used. And I'm about to say a vulgar word. And that word is tits, because she is tits out Frances Howard. 
if you look at the portraits of her, like there's nothing else anyone could possibly call her. It's not just like, oh, this was an era where women wore like low cut dresses. Like, no. If you look at portraits of literally any other woman from this time period, which is the early 1600s, like Frances Howard is the only one whose like entire chest cavity, her like entire decollete, it's like tits out. Like there's no nipples in these portraits, but that's just because they're portraits that were painted and not photographs. Like she, her entire chest is on display in every portrait you can find of her, including when she's an older person. Spoiler, she becomes an older person, including when she's grieving. Like, spoiler, she is in mourning at one point. She's just like, it's just glorious. Like, she just like is into her breast area and she is just like tits out Frances Howard. And that is also how she lived her life, just tits out. And this is like, I can't, <laughs> it, there's, there's a lot to this story. There is a lot to the story. The scoring is going to be pretty exciting, I think. So Frances Howard, she was born in 1590. Um, her father was called Lord Thomas Howard. And I should say her last name was Howard as in Catherine Howard as in Henry VIII's fifth wife. Frances and Catherine aren't closely related, really, because the Howards were the super powerful, influential family in England at around this time. But like everybody in the family had like 17 children and th those children had 17 children. So basically, that's the lineage we're dealing with. It's a similarly powerful family. So Thomas Howard was married to a woman who was the Duchess of Norfolk. So Frances wasn't royalty, but she was a noblewoman. So she was rich. Um, her parents had titles. And so as per in this time and place, what that means is that the whole point of her was to grow up and marry somebody that would be beneficial to her family and that would bring money and prosperity and maybe hopefully more power to their family. And so in 1604, when Frances was, if you're keeping track, she's born in 1590, 1604, she is 14 years old and she got married to a 13-year-old boy named Robert Devereux. So I talked about this briefly in the last episode about Carolina Brunswick, but there's this sort of assumption, I'm stereotyped that people in places like England in the 1600s got married when they were like 12 and then they had, you know, 17 children and then they like retired when they were 20, like the lives were short, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of fallacies in that, including the fact that people didn't actually die young that much more. It's just the the average age of death looks low because so many children died. Anyway, getting married at age 14 is not usual, but also when you're married when you're that young, it's not like, okay, go off, like have a house, be adults now. It's like you, often people got betrothed when they're that young or they got engaged when they're that young. In this case, she got married when she was that young, but no one expected them to like run off and start acting like married people. Oh, and I should also mention, so they got married Robert Devereux was from also from a powerful family. So I was just going to say Robert Devereux, we need to explain about him a little bit. He's one of several men who are going to be included in this story. So Robert Devereux, 13-year-old husband of Francis Howard, is the son of a man who is also named Robert Devereux, who was Queen Elizabeth's favorite towards the end of her life. So Queen Elizabeth lived for quite a while, all things considered, and she got older and older and older, but she, sort of like in a reverse Leonardo DiCaprio situation, the men who she liked kept always being sort of younger men. So the older Robert Devereux was Queen Elizabeth's favorite for a while. And then this Robert Devereux 
is the son of that person. Just bear in mind as well, in um, 1601, so three years before this teenage wedding happened, the older Robert Devereux was executed for treason because he tried to overthrow the government. So like things are not, it's not like a calm time in the world generally. Francis, Francis Howard, Robert Devereux got married, but they didn't actually consummate the marriage because it was, they were very young children. Um, and also everybody knew that it was dangerous for 14 year olds to get pregnant. And they wanted to wait until Francis had like grown up and matured a bit. So she was able to do that. Basically they were married, but like a marriage is not official until it is consummated. Um, so they just sort of like waited a few years while that was happening. Robert Devereux, 13-year-old boy, just went off for sort of like a gap year, just like touring around Europe. And he was away for two years. And when he came back, Frances basically did everything she could to never be alone with him ever. And so you might think, well, isn't this the point? Like, aren't they now, like, what would they be, 16 and 14 or whatever? Anyway, she didn't want to be alone with him, partially because he had contracted smallpox, during his trip and she didn't want to catch smallpox and die. And also because while he was away, she had fallen in love with someone else. So the person who she had fallen in love with was called also Robert. Literally every man in the story is called Robert. Basically it's going to be complicated. The other man who she fell in love with is called Robert Carr, the Earl of Somerset. So we're just going to call him Somerset to tell him apart from Devereux, which is what we're going to call him as well. So Somerset was around Francis's age, just a few years older, and he wasn't from a noble family. I mean, people from noble families didn't tend to hang out with people from not noble families. So the thing was he had elevated himself, basically. So while Francis was off getting married as a young teenager, Somerset was a teenager um, and he was a page in Edinburgh, which means basically, I think, you know, like the sort of person who would like go and get a glass of wine for a somebody more important, etc. While he was doing this, he made friends with a writer whose name was Thomas Overbury. And Thomas Overbury was not very important or influential himself at the time, but the two of them just kind of hit it off. They became super great friends in this sort of like, when there's two people who are friends, there's often the one who's sort of like the main one and the one who's sort of the sidekick. And in this situation, Somerset was the charismatic, ambitious one and Overbury was kind of the like behind the scenes, sort of quieter sort of person. So Somerset made a, a great impression on the king, who at this point was King James I of England. And we'll get into that in a bit, how, what Somerset did and why the two of them hinted off. But basically Overbury supported him. He thought this is great. My BFF is, is friends with the king. Like this is great for everybody. Somerset became one of the most influential people at court with Overbury sort of as his hype man, like sort of supporting him. So how did he meet the king? So in 1607, which is the same year that Devereux left to go on his gap year after the teenage wedding, Somerset was at a jousting match. Um, we all know what jousting is. It's this wildly dangerous quote unquote sport where knights put on their armor and then they race towards another knight, also in armor, on a horse, and then you like poke at each other with your sticks. Somerset broke his leg during a jousting match, which is just like, ugh. like on, in the first hand, like it's 1607, medical care, not amazing. But also it wasn't so bad 
there's like okay doctors around and stuff. And so the king, King James was like, oh my God, this poor, extremely handsome young man has just been injured. I, the king, am just going to like nurse him back to health because that's just the sort of king I am slash King James the first, kind of like his aunt, Queen Elizabeth, just really liked really young, hot looking men. So basically they like bonded in sort of like a soap opera-y way where Somerset was like convalescing and King James was, I don't think he was like personally tending to him, but I'm sure he'd check in on him all the time and they just like got to be quite close. Um, And Somerset became James's favorite. The king loved him so much um, that he knighted him. He made him a knight, um, called him the Viscount Rochester, hired him as a privy counselor. So this is just like every good thing happening to him. So the thing is that King James was easily swayed by who he liked and who he didn't like. He wasn't looking at things like very objectively. He'd just be like, who's my favorite person? Great. I'm going to make that person like the archbishop or whatever. And so since that was his personality, getting back to the Francis of it all, the Howard family um, were like, okay, so this is the king's personality. Like if he likes you, he'll do nice things for you. So how can we make him like us, the Howard family? And so the thing is that by now, so again, Robert Devereux is off just like getting smallpox on mainland Europe. Somerset is here in England and he and Francis have met each other at the court because she's a noblewoman and he's the king's favorite. And they basically totally fell in love. And so Francis's family was like, oh, okay. So our little baby Francis is has fallen in love. She's captured the heart of the king's favorite. So this is great. Like, how can we use this relationship between this man and this woman to help bring more power to us, the Howard family? And so ideally what they would do is marry Francis to Somerset, but they can't do that because she was still married basically to Robert Devereux. But the thing is that she and Robert Devereux had never consummated their relationship And if you haven't consummated your relationship, and I feel like this might even be true now, um, you've grounds for an annulment. You can say like, it was never a real marriage. So basically Francis is like, this is great. I'm just going to get my marriage to Robert Devereux annulled. And then I can marry my true love, Somerset, a man who is himself in the midst of like a love triangle with potentially Thomas Overbury and the king. So that's a little love triangle, those three men, Somerset, the king and Overbury. But then Somerset is in love with Francis. And then Francis is still married to Devereux. So this is like a five person, like love quintangle. I'm not sure what the word would be when there's five people. So Francis is like, this is great. This is fine. I'm going to get my marriage annulled. I'm going to marry this man who I love, who is Somerset. Her family is like, this is great. She's going to get this marriage annulled. She's going to marry Somerset. And then we, the Howard family, are going to get all this power and influence. But meanwhile, Somerset's best friend, Thomas Overbury, was just kind of like, this seems like questionable. The Howard family had a reputation for being like maybe overly ambitious for being sort of like cutthroat, sort of like little finger from Game of Thrones if he had a family with like hundreds of people in it. So Overbury was just like, I feel like Somerset might be trapped in some sort of like the web of this like seductress. Slash also Overbury was maybe jealous that Somerset was now in love with Francis because Overbury maybe had been in love with Somerset slash maybe they were sleeping together too. I mean, a lot of things might be going on here. 
But one of the things that Overbury mentioned is that he was concerned. And this is like, seems to me, looking at this from the 21st century in Canada, reading about what happened centuries after it happened, that Overbury was jealous that Francis had taken all of Somerset's attention away from him. Francis was also from this like notoriously conniving family. But also I think Overbury was just like jealous, like basically. And so he sort of coached this in saying like, oh, I'm just concerned because Francis has a reputation for immodesty, quote unquote, which like, if you look at the portraits of her, I'm sure she had a reputation for immodesty because basically the tops of her dresses were just sleeves and then like waistband, like her breasts were just like, voila, constantly all the time. Look up any portrait of her. That's how you know it's a portrait of her. So basically, Overbury was like, I don't trust this woman. Tits out Frances Howard. She's just like a bit extreme. And I feel like I just want to get back to just when things were like me and Somerset and we were bros and things were great. So he's a writer, remember, Thomas Overbury. So he published a poem called A Wife. And it was basically sort of like like a 17th century sort of like incel manifesto where he just sort of like described where he was like, here's what an ideal wife should be like. Like number one, like ideal wife, she should have dresses that cover her breasts. She should be like nice and quiet and not be called Francis and et cetera, et cetera. So it was basically a subtweet trying to get Francis to back off and for Somerset to realize like, oh my God, I have been fooled by this like femme fatale what am I doing with Francis? Like, I'm going to break up with her. But guess what? That did not happen. But it made Francis and Somerset want to get married even more. And so Overbury was like, well, what can I do to stop my friend from making what seems to me like a terrible mistake? And this is like, if you, here's my unsolicited advice for just like the world. If your friend is with somebody who's terrible, you can tell your friend the person is terrible. But if your friend doesn't listen to you, Like what you should not do is like publish a poem and then you should also try to not like actively break up your friend and this person. I mean, maybe there's situations where you should do that, but mostly like just let your friend make their own mistakes, basically. So Thomas Overbury was like, okay, my poem didn't work. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to like start like lobbying the judges or whatever to not let Frances get her annulment because she's still married to Robert Devereux at this point. And as long as she's still married to Robert Devereux, she can't marry Somerset. And that's all Overbury wants for Somerset to not be married to Frances. So Frances was like, okay, I see what's going on because she was both tits out physically, emotionally, but also mentally, she was super smart, really savvy, super clever. And so she realized that Overbury was scheming against her. So she enlisted the help of her Howard family, which were basically sort of like, just sort of like a mafia, almost a family where it's just like, this is what's happening. And her whole family's like, we're on it. And so they, they said about getting Thomas Overbury kicked out of court. So she, she had a plan to trick Overbury into committing treason. And it seems like this whole thing goes all the way to the top, as they say, on my favorite murder, Georgia Hartstark, where even like the king's wife, Queen Anne, might have been involved. Like basically, it seems like everybody just like really hated Thomas Overbury. And so they were everyone like literally everyone was on board of just like just sort of like kicking him out of court. 
And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. And we're back. The scheme was this. So Overbury was obsessed with staying near Somerset. He didn't want to leave him ever basically, um, because they were best friends and he wanted was best for him slash he was maybe in love with him slash was maybe sleeping with him. So Francis and the queen, they sort of like use their womanly wiles and exposed chests to manipulate the king into offering Overbury the job of ambassador to Russia. And Overbury was like, oh my God, what an honor, but I can't go to Russia. I need to literally stay here, tied at the hip to my best friend, Somerset. And so basically, when the king tells you to go be the Russian ambassador, if you don't do it, then that's treason. And so there's also sort of hints that at this point, the king himself might have not even needed to have been manipulated to do this. Like he wanted to get rid of Overbury as well, because the king was probably in love with, probably sleeping with Somerset as well. So this is just like, it's not a love triangle. It's just like Somerset in the middle. And around him are the like, three to five people who are all in love with him and who are all sleeping with him. And where it all sort of turns is that one of those people is Frances Howard and she's just like tits out and she's going to make this happen for her. So basically 
The king was on board with getting rid of Thomas Overbury because he was jealous of the time that Overbury spent with Somerset because the king liked to be with Somerset. And this is just all like, this is where it gets complicated. This is where I feel like, of course, other podcasts aren't talking about this. This is like not a straightforward narrative. So just to recap, so we've got Somerset who is this man who is the favorite of the king. They're probably sleeping together. Somerset's best friend is Thomas Overbury. They're probably sleeping together. So the king is jealous of Somerset's relationship with Overbury, but Overbury is jealous of Somerset's relationship with Francis Howard, tits out Francis Howard, who is still technically married to Robert Devereux, formerly a teenage boy, now an adult man, recovered from smallpox, hasn't been in the same city as her for a really long time. So these are the puzzle pieces and what's becoming rapidly sort of a weird, sexy version of Clue set in Stuart era. So basically, Overbury had been tricked into committing treason by refusing to become the ambassador to Russia. And so he was arrested um, and put into jail in the Tower of London. And after five months, he died of, quote-unquote, natural causes. So with Overbury out of the way, Francis finally was able to get on with the whole annulment scenario. The way that this worked in this time for this married sort of couple was that um, Francis and Devereux both sort of went into a courtroom, and so Francis testified that she had done her best to have sex with, with Devereux, and she says, that like, you know, she tried to have sex with him, but he was just like not able to, to have sex with her. He was impotent, she alleged. Um, and so the proof of this is that, I just want to clarify it because I think I got a bit mixed up, which means you're probably a bit mixed up as well. So they got married when they were 13 to 14 years old. Deborah went away on a trip for two years. Then he came back. While he was away, Francis had fallen in love with Somerset. And then once he was back, she basically, even though they were husband and wife, she just like never went to bed with him ever is what she did. Um, and so she alleges that he was impotent, so they couldn't have sex, which means the marriage was invalid, which means that she should be able to get an annulment. So the main evidence in a trial where you're trying to prove that your husband, when you're Francis and you're in this time and place, and she's trying to prove that her husband was impotent, um, the main evidence is her virginity. Basically, was her hymen intact or not? Because this is a culture and a time and place where um, a young woman was sort of expected to just never have sex until she was married. And so Francis is saying like that she never had sex with her husband, even though she was married. So technically she should be intact. In order to investigate this, super fun, so she was examined by 10 matrons and two midwives who just did a little gynecological exploration um, to see whether her hymen was intact. And in so doing, they found that, yes, she was still a virgin. But um, plot twist, it wasn't really Francis who they were examining. So Francis was like, I am happy for you guys to investigate my hymen's intactness. But I'm also so shy. I'm so shy. Can we just do it in a room with a veil covering my face? And can I just like go in the room for a minute first, put a veil over my face, and then you'll come in? And they were like, that's totally reasonable. We've seen portraits of you and have no reason to think that you're not a shy person. So basically, 
she allegedly, rumor has it, switched places with somebody who was a virgin for this inspection. It's entirely possible Frances herself did not ever have sex to this point. If you're looking for the Occam's razor of it all, like, and then the investigation was actually of her, but that's just like, I'm guessing that she switched places with somebody. So this is all happening. The midwives examined her and they found they're like, yep, she's totally a virgin. That means her husband must have been impotent. But Devereaux, who was, guess what, the worst. Um, so he got up on the stand and he was like, actually, I am super virile. I've had sex with so many people before. And it's actually Francis's fault that we never had sex. So he confirms the fact that they never had sex. But he's saying it was her fault because she was so gross and ugly he got some of his friends to come up and testify for things like I've seen him with an erection, which means he's capable of being aroused. So like he clearly could have sex just for some reason with Francis, he wasn't able to. So Devereaux was like, Francis was mean to me. She's sexually unappealing. Um, so I was just unable to have sex with her, but it's her fault. And basically this was all happening in court. Lots of witnesses there hearing all of this talk about sex and hymens and erections and it got really everyone was kind of talking if you've seen like the favorite the movie that was from like just a few decades later people around the court they like a good little piece of gossip and this is just like beyond but wait it gets weirder so suspicions start to come up that perhaps Devereaux has been bewitched like Satanism might be involved in why he can't, he wasn't able to have sex with Francis. So for a while, it was looking like he might be sent to Poland for an exorcism, because apparently that is where he went for exorcisms back then. But basically, eventually the king, um, King James intervened and was just like, you know what, we're just going to like grant this annulment. And the trial basically was ended. Three months later, Francis was able to marry Somerset and so things sort of were looking happily ever after adjacent until it wasn't because two years after Overbury had died, someone finally noticed that he hadn't actually died in prison of natural causes. He had actually been murdered by poisoning. This is where we get into the next whole weird bit of, of the whole saga. So basically what happens is Francis and Somerset go back to court. And um, this time, instead of her virginity being on trial, Francis is on trial for murder with accomplices. So one of the accomplices is Somerset. And then there's four other accomplices. During the trial, the whole scheme came out. So basically what happened was this. So Francis had conspired with some other people to get Thomas Overbury thrown in prison because she knew that once he was in prison, she had enough safeguards in there to poison him to death. So she had used her, um, presumably, tits out powers to um, have the Lord Lieutenant of the Tower of London removed and had him replaced by a man much more morally flexible. The new Lord Lieutenant was a man named Gervais Helwis, which is like quite a name. And then there was also another jailer who she had who was working for her on the inside, who was a man named Robert Weston, who knew a lot about how to kill people with various pharmaceuticals. And the thing is that even though Overbury was in jail, he was still like a wealthy person. So he wasn't like shackled to a wall in a cell. He sort of got like an okay room, sort of like a hotel room. 
And Richard Weston was like his concierge. And then finally, the final conspirator was somebody named Mrs. Ann Turner, who was the wife of a physician and slash she was also herself a part-time brothel owner. So she had access to a lot of drugs. So she was able to get the drugs. Weston was able to smoosh up the drugs and mix them in the food. And Gervais Helwes was sort of like there to look the other way. Oh, and there was one other person whose name was Simon Franklin, who was an apothecary. Presumably he had something to do with the drugs as well. And the drug they decided to use to kill him with was sulfuric acid. How do we know all of these things? This is like a lot of details to know about something. And the reason we know this is because Frances basically pled guilty. She admitted to having done all of this stuff, but Somerset pled innocent. So the couple was sort of, there's a novel that came out a bit ago called The Poison Bed by E.C. Fremantle. And side note, it's because of the novel that I first started reading up about this actual historical event. But the novel is sort of like Gone Girl, where you're not sure if she's guilty, if he's guilty, if they're both guilty, like who's telling the truth and who's not. But what happened in history was Francis pled guilty and it copped everything. And Somerset said he had nothing to do with it. It was totally all Francis doing everything. Either seems plausible to me. I feel like Francis was obviously capable of planning this all herself, but also like, how would Somerset not have known about it? Anyway, the king, still James I, who's still infatuated with Somerset, was basically, um, he's like, ooh, this is starting to look bad for me. People are starting to suspect that maybe the king and the queen had something to do with it because the whole like sending Overbury to Russia scenario. So he tried to encourage Somerset to plead guilty so they could like wrap this up quickly. And basically if Somerset pled guilty, then James could pardon him and it would all be done. But Somerset was just like, no, I'm not going to plead guilty, which is where I feel like it could be that he's innocent. But also if he pled guilty, yeah, the king could pardon him, but what if that didn't happen? What if he was found guilty and then got to be executed? Anyway, um, fun fact. So there was a jury of all men because it was a time of all men juries. And do you know who one of the jurors was? This might be part of why Somerset didn't want the jury to decide his fate. Because one of the jurors was Robert Devereux, Francis Howard's ex-husband, the one who was proven in a court to be impotent, who had smallpox as a teenager, etc. So basically, Devereux was eager to sentence both of them to death because they had crossed him. Um, they had forced him to stand up in front of everybody in England and be like, yes, I can have erections. This is just like, I can't even. So the verdict was decided upon. So what happened was that they were not sentenced to death, but to life in prison. Francis and Somerset were because they were rich and also James, you know, like them. But the other four um, who were not wealthy were all hanged for their role in the death. So that means Gervais Helwes, Richard Weston, Ann Turner, and Simon Franklin were all executed for their role in this whole situation. Francis and Somerset both found guilty, sentenced to life in jail, but Francis was pardoned almost immediately. Somerset was also soon after, so they weren't even in jail for that long. Basically, they spent about two years in the Tower of London, which again, as rich people, it wasn't like shackled to the wall. It was sort of just like an okay hotel situation. Clearly, they got to visit each other sometimes because Francis got pregnant and gave birth to a child while they were living there. It was a daughter who they called Anne. Nice name. And basically, they, they left prison and just like kept, kept going. They lived the rest of their lives out of the public eye. Basically, they stayed away from royal court. They were just sort of notorious people that everybody would sort of be like, oh my God, do you know who that is when they went out anywhere? 
The whole thing was so dramatic that a number of plays and poems and other writings came out over the next few years, inspired both by the events of Francis's annulment trial and the whole like virgin switcheroo, as well as the whole murder thing. Um, posthumously, Thomas Overbury's poem, A Wife, became a best-selling poem because of his connection to the crime in that he was murdered. And because the poem, A Wife, everybody knew is a subtweet of Frances Howard, who is like the most notorious woman in the world. Basically, the poem was not out of print for the next 60 years. And if you're wondering what happened to Robert Devereux, um, he did get married again, but he never fathered any children, legitimate or illegitimate. So maybe he was impotent? Who's to say? Frances Howard passed away in 1632, aged 42 years old. Her husband, Robert Carr, passed away 12 years later. Their daughter, Anne, lived a long and healthy life. And the king, King James, stayed king for a while. But this is just like one of many examples of why he kind of got a reputation of being like not a squeaky clean sort of guy, sort of like a morally questionable type person. If you want to read more about this, there's a... So as I said, there's the novel, The Poison Bed by E.C. Fremantle. And there's also two nonfiction books that I read to consult to write this. Um, there's The Overbury Affair by Miriam Allen DeFond, as well as A Natural Murder, Poison in the Court of James I by Anne Somerset, who is an author who seems to be a descendant of Frances Howard and her daughter Anne. And now it is time to score this on the scandalousness score scale. And this is like, okay, there's four four categories. And this is just like, first we're going to go, we're going to start with scandaliciousness. So this is like the quality, like how juicy and gossipy and like messed up is this story. And this is like, like this has got murder that Francis Howard admitted to that she was sent to jail for. We've got the scandalicious neckline of literally every bodice of every dress she ever wore. We've got the whole, was she a virgin or not trial? Like, I, I can't not give this a 10. This is a 10 out of, I can't think of anything she could have done. Like the scandaliciousness of the fact that Somerset was in his own gay love triangle with the king. Like, this whole story, it's, if I could give it more than 10, I would, for scandaliciousness. In terms of scheminess, Again, I feel like Frances Howard, she had the, the scheminess, like with the support of her family. I guess the question is like, how much was her and how much was her family sort of helping figure all these plans out for her? But basically, a lot of this rested on her and she was able to pull off a lot of stuff. She was able to pull off getting the annulment, the virginity switcheroo, like conscripting five other people to murder somebody with her. Like her scheminess, I'm going to give her an eight, an eight for scheminess. The next category is significance, which is interesting because like, so the significance category, that would be like, did Frances Howard invent algebra? Did she, I don't know, you know, like did one of her descendants end up becoming the next queen or whatever? Like basically in terms of the, like it was a huge scandal at the time. I mean, 10 out of 10 for scandaliciousness. The significance was a factor in the reputation of James I, which sort of tarnished the reputation of his son, Charles I, who was kicked off the throne by revolution. So it was like, 
there's some significance to this, but it's like one part of a bigger thing that affected British history. So I love her. Frances Howard is my girl, but I'm just going to give her, I think, a three for significance. And the final category is sexism. This is like giving more points dependent on how much did being a woman in a patriarchal society affect what happened to her. And this is an interesting one to think about because Frances Howard kind of saw the cards she was dealt, being the daughter of this wealthy family, being married off to this guy. And she kind of didn't, she found ways to work with that and to make it work for her. Like I don't, obviously sexism, basically everybody's going to always at least get a five in sexism because that was just always a part of everyone's life. I mean, the fact that she had to prove her virginity in the trial, like that's pretty, that's pretty shitty where she had to prove that she wanted to have sex, but couldn't like, other than that though, like people didn't like, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with a five, like a five, five in the category of sexism. So that gives her 18, 26, 26 out of 40 in the scandalousness scale, which is like a really good score. I mean, we just went through literally everything that she got up to. I mean, this is the highest score so far. I know it's just the second episode, but I'm interested to see where where other people are going to score. So basically, my name is Ann Foster. This is Vulgar History. Um, you can follow me on social media at Ann Foster Writer. Um, I have a website at AnnFosterWriter.com where I wrote about Frances Howard and other scandalous women from history. I have a Patreon, um, which is Patreon.com slash Ann Foster Writer. And I am going to be working on some shorter little mini episodes that I think are going to be Patreon only. So when I find like a cool story, but it's not long enough to do a full episode, those are going to be there. So you can check me out on Patreon. And if you are a fan of Vulgar History and why wouldn't you be, please subscribe and rate and review on your favorite podcast app. And I'll talk to you all next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.